Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to Scran, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. In this week's episode, I met up with Gary McLean, Scotland's national chef, winner of Master Chef, owner of Creel Cot in St James's Quarter in Edinburgh, and lecturer at the City of Glasgow College. People say college can be a life-changing experience, and this is never truer than in Gary's case, where since the day he set foot in Glasgow City College, there's rarely been a week he didn't go there to learn or teach. So I did my class, I got through, and uh, never been prouder, you know, never ever been prouder than anything I've ever done that I managed to teach a class, you know, that I never thought. And again, thinking back of that young guy at school who was disengaged and not very good to then be in front of a class sharing your knowledge. We talked about his 30 years experience in opening restaurants all over Scotland. And despite never planning to run his own restaurant, he now operates Creelcott in Edinburgh. And I saw what Bonnie and Wilde had planned in terms of the whole Scottish aspect of quality, quality food, you know, young Scottish chefs, that sort of thing. And there was an opportunity to do something there. I thought it was, uh, it was, a, it was too good an opportunity not to take on. Gary also tells me why he believes it's time for major changes in the industry which would allow staff time to have lives outside their work and the customers should pay for the service they're receiving rather than the chefs and front of house staff who are subsidising their dining experiences with hours of free labour. For too long, chefs and front of house have been subsidising the food for the customer. And I think it's now the time for restaurants to charge the right amount of money to provide the service that they do. Today I'm joined by Scotland's National Chef, Gary McLean. Hi Gary, how are you? Hiya, how's you? Nice, thanks. Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, just uh, nice to see you again. Yeah, and it's, it's nice to see the world starting to reappear again. Hopefully 2022 is going to be a, a lot better than 2021. Yeah, it feels a bit more normal now. You kind of getting that with your work. Yeah, I mean, I just think in general, you know, there's a lot more events happening. I'm starting to get the calls again from abroad to do, you know, things like Highland Games and things like that. Um, so the States opening up was a big thing for me. So I've done a couple of trips already just before Christmas to uh, New York for an event and then uh, Chicago for a big Scottish event. And in a couple of weeks, I'm away to South Carolina. So my world from this the, uh, last year to this year has completely changed. Nice. It's quite exciting, though. Yeah, it is, most definitely, yeah. It's kind of 
obviously you're you're working around the whole COVID rules and things like that, which is quite strange. Sometimes you can go to three countries and have three different sets of rules and three different sets of forms and different jab requirements and things like that. But, you know, if that's the way we are, if that's how we have to travel, that's how we have to travel for now. So it's just getting your head around it. Yeah. Um, so for anyone that doesn't know, just go right back to the start. You're Scotland's national chef, but um, you've obviously not always been that. So how did you get started out on your journey? Was it always something that you knew you wanted to do or um, how did it all start? I always had a fascination for food, even at a very, very young age. And I think my story as a chef is probably quite typical to a lot of chefs. I was fairly disengaged at school. You know, I grew up in a time in Glasgow when unemployment was about 20%. So there was a different view of the world when I grew up. You know, your mission as a young person was to get a job you know that was it and and get a job not a career not a you know college place or university place it was all about just getting out there to work as I say I didn't enjoy school I really didn't see the point but what I did love was home economics I had a fantastic teacher and I was good at home economics whereas I was rubbish at most other things I was good at home economics and I was good at drama and it was amazing for someone who was so bad at everything else that I was good at something. So it was a kind of no-brainer that, that food would play a part in my life. So it was. But it was my teacher who suggested that I, I should become a chef. And I distinctly remember thinking, you know, someone's going to pay me to be able to cook. That's amazing, you know. And and again, there was no kind of, there was no no chefs on TV. There was none of the kind of food scene had happened yet. You know, this was kind of mid-80s. Um, so there was no chefs on TV. You never ate out. You know, the only time you ever ate out of your home was in someone else's home. So you never really saw a chef. You didn't really know it was a job. So the thought that someone would pay you to cook was amazing. At 15, I had enough of school and uh, I managed to get a job uh, in an amazing country house hotel out in the Trossachs. So basically from one Friday night hanging about the street corners of Glasgow to then on the Monday morning being in one of the most beautiful places in the world, putting on a chef's jacket for the first time was quite a, a transformation in my life. And being honest, I've, I haven't looked back since. And is it that kind of like how it transformed your life and um, how it took you to where you are? Is it that that's made you want to kind of um, nurture the next generation with your work at the college? The college has always played a massive part in my career. I started there in 1988 as a student. And back then, there was very few full-time students because college was always work-related. College was always in a, a, an addition to work. So I used to do twilight classes, which was two to nine, uh, two days a week. So basically, you're two days off, you were at college. And uh, I did that for eight years you know, the way it worked, I just kept going and kept going and kept going and kept doing everything that I could until I got to the kind of end because I, I loved the experience. So I did eight years. After graduation, about a year after graduation, I was I was phoned up and asked if I would cover a class. And being honest, I never ever thought that I would be teaching, you know, and I remember going, no problem, I can cover, I can cover a class. I think a lecture was at dentist or something like that. And uh, I went in that Wednesday. Absolutely terrifying experience because I had never been in the college at nine in the morning or eight in the morning. So for the first time in my life, I seen how packed the place was, how many other students there was, because I'd always come in at two, everybody was in the class, left at nine, everybody had gone. So, you know, my class on classes like it had, you know, we did, we did run out of the college, to be honest, but going in there at that time in the morning, seeing thousands of 
students from all disciplines in the college was quite incredible and terrifying at the same time. So I did my class, I got through and uh, never been prouder, you know, never, ever been prouder on anything I've ever done that I managed to teach a class, you know, that I never thought. And again, thinking back of that young guy at school who was disengaged and not very good to then be in front of a class sharing your knowledge. And uh, I managed to cover that class every Wednesday for 13 years. So no matter what I did in my career, you know, I was going for big jobs, you know, running big companies and things like that. You know, any questions would come up as they do in interviews and mine would be, well, I don't really have a question, but if you give me the job, I need a Wednesday off because I teach. So I had a lot of interviews like that. But for me, you know, having that foot in education pretty much my whole career has been has been amazing. You know, through as a young chef, you're making your connections, you're building your network, you're learning, you know, and not only building your network from your the teaching staff, you're also building your network from your fellow students, which I think is vital. You know, and a lot of the a lot of the people that were in my class on day one, I'm still friends with. In fact, I married one of them. My wife was in that first class. So so it, it was a life college. It was a real life changing um, experience for me. And when I think back in any kind of job I've ever had, any competition I've ever done, even MasterChef has all connected back to, to college. I think that'll be the, the only, my life has changed so much over since starting to, to now. But the only constant there has really been City of Glasgow College, which is, has been amazing. And you mentioned MasterChef there. So what was that like? MasterChef was, was amazing. I mean, it was just such a, a nice experience to be in. The reality of being there, then watching it edited with the music and everything else, it's two different experiences. You know, I really loved it when you're on front of a camera because when you get to the camera start rolling and you're standing there in front of your food, you should know what you're doing by that stage. The difficult thing for me was, you know, obviously you're away from home for a long time, but you're also having to come up to that next dish. You know that, so you get through the next, you get through that round, and then you're you're packed off to your your hotel, you know, a three star hotel on the busiest street in London, you know, with no internet, and you're sitting there, and you're, you know, it's the loneliest thing ever. You're sitting there on your own, and you're trying to be, you're trying to find that next dish that you're going to cook in front of four million people. So for me, that was the bad bit. And again, when you first go down. You know, there's a novelty factor and you're getting to meet new people and new chefs and you're maybe going out to eat in the restaurants in London that you always fancy going to see. After a couple of weeks of that, you know, you run out of energy, you run out of money and the friends that you went to the London restaurants have been kicked off the show. So it becomes uh, it becomes quite tough. You end up living off a uh, Marks and Spencer sandwiches, you know, for the next seven weeks because it's just so intense. It's just getting right down to the, sort of the business end of that, that uh, experience. But it was great. And I urge anybody that might be watching this, whether they're a professional chef who's thinking they're doing MasterChef professionals or an amateur who, who fancies getting on there, just go for it and keep going for it until you get on. It's a brilliant experience. The crew down there and the, and the people who do, who pull that show together are the nicest people ever. And one thing, they do this every day. You know, this is that studio is running for a full year, making the three different shows that they do. But when you walk through that door, they treat you as though you're the first contestant ever to walk in, you know, and they realise the type of experience that we're having and, and they're, they're a massive part of that. But anybody, even the chefs that go on day one and half of all people go in the first day, they get treated with so much respect. They've done something that they can be proud of as well. 
you know, they're all looked after and all respected. It's, it's a fantastic experience. Everything that you've done up to this point, you've not actually had your own restaurant, is that right? I've spent the majority of my career opening restaurants, but I've never ever put my own money in ever before. As I say, I've op- opened about 80 throughout my career all over Scotland. Everything from Indi- Indian restaurants to to French, to Scottish, to hotels. I've opened cinemas. I've opened restaurants and ice rinks and all sorts of stuff. So probably my biggest skill set is probably opening restaurants, if truth be told. But I've I've never done it. I've never done it on my own. And I've always said that I've never I would never risk my kids' house for my dream to open a restaurant. And to be honest, I kind of ticked the box. You know, I think a lot of chefs are really keen to make their own to make their own way and make their own stamp on the high street and things like that. And I did that. I did that for 25, almost 30 years. And whether or not it was mine or not, it felt like mine. You know, whoever I was working for, you know, walking into that new restaurant that that I'd created and thought about in my dining room table at home, it felt every bit as as much as mine as my place I've opened in Edinburgh does. And yeah, so that is Creole Court at Bonnie and Wild. Yeah, that's been a that's been quite a long journey. I've been looking at that kind of market concept for about four years, and uh, I was approached by a, a London company four or five years five years ago now to to have a look at what they do in London, and they were keen to sort of branch out into Scotland and sort of Northern England, and they brought me on board to take a look at the kind of community aspect of it and, and training and things like that. So I kind of, you know, kind of looked at, you know, things like demo kitchens and the idea being uh, that they had was to bring in the community that, that, that they could support the community and use it for kids clubs and cookery classes and all these sorts of stuff. So I was kind of brought into that and, and that was fine. And they, they eventually got a site in Edinburgh, which was the St. James Quarter site. COVID hit. That company went under, and that was that. That was the end of that process. And then um, the the company that then took over that site had heard that I'd been involved, and I was involved with uh, one of my my good friends who was kind of project managing the opening of that site. He, um, we were brought back, and he he eventually became the managing director of that company and opened Bonnie and Wild. And when I saw what Bonnie and Wild had planned in terms of the whole Scottish aspect of quality, quality food, you know, young Scottish chefs, that sort of thing. And there was an opportunity to do something there. I thought it was a, it was a, it was too good an opportunity not to take on. So I opened it during my summer holidays of 2021. So it was a purely a, a kind of summer break uh, exercise. So I managed to get kitchen in, got it staffed and everything else. And then as soon as, um, as soon as the college started back, that was me sort of out of that space. So, I mean, it kind of runs independent. I mean, anyone who doesn't really know that what Bonnie World Market does, it's, it's fundamentally a posh food court. So you've got concessions within a massive space. You know, you've got loads and loads of different things. We've got Ghana East and we've got chicks and, and Creole Court and uh, salt and chilies. There's vegan, there's um, a breakfast offer. So there's lots and lots going on within that space. And essentially for me as a as a, an owner of one of those spaces, all I have to look after is the food because the Bonnie World Market take care of, you know, things like front of house and clearing tables and take to looking after bars and all that sort of stuff. So in terms of saying that I've opened a restaurant, I've opened a kind of concession within a massive space. So there's an incredible, 
ample amount of support within that space that I don't have to worry about. All I need to worry about is making sure that you know my my team are happy and and that they're they're doing a good job and that that's that. I don't think I would ever be capable of opening a restaurant restaurant a high street restaurant. I think it just takes up too much time. And as I said earlier about my my career at college, that's that's what uh, really drives us. Creel Court is a, a kind of hobby and it's nice to have have something operating. And for anyone that's not visited yet, what, what's on the menu? The biggest thing that we sell, actually, I mean, our, the whole concept and the whole reason I kind of went with the whole seafood thing was the there was a, a, a very famous documentary that was out a couple of months before I opened and it was talking about the seafood industry and how bad it is and how bad that food chain is and stuff like that. And obviously with my role as being an educator and being Scotland's national chef, I get the opportunity to go out and actually see what goes on in Scotland. I meet the fishermen, I meet the I go into uh, aquaculture sites, I see the food chain. And what I saw in that documentary isn't a reflection of what is actually happening in Scotland. So... I was kind of, I was quite angry when I saw it and I thought, I'm definitely doing fish. I'm definitely doing a fish restaurant. And we had Brexit coming and, you know, we had that whole sort of double whammy with breakfast and COVID and everything else that was affecting the fishing industry. And I just really felt passionately about doing something to support it, to do something to say, this is what we do. So the whole basis of Creole Caught is, is in the name. You know, it's all about ethical, uh, sustainable fishing. And that is fundamentally it, you know. So, so at the minute we've got, you know, things like uh, langoustines on the menu. We've got our broth smokies. We're using coli. Uh, we've got a kind of coli burger kind of thing on the menu. We're using Shetland mussels. And again, anyone that doesn't know anything about Shetland mussels, they're kind of carbon plus. They help the environment as opposed to take anything from it, you know, by providing areas for other other creatures and stuff to live. Fish and chips is a big seller. So we've got a beautiful Scottish haddock. And almost every customer that has fish and chips comes back up to the counter and says it's the best I've ever had. So that is a kind of mission. Really simple. You know, you can sit and have lobster or seafood platter, but but it's in a it's in a casual dining setting. Everything's really quick within the space because the customer orders their own food and collects their own food. So you then don't have any kind of you're not waiting on a on a on service staff taking your order, then getting it to a kitchen, then waiting for a you know server to take it back to your table and stuff like that. So it's a kind of it's a fun way to dine. Uh, so as and I think you know particularly if if both of us were go, going going there for lunch and I fancied having a seafood platter, you don't like fish, you could go and get a number of other dishes from a number of other kitchens within that space. And the other thing for all of us to a degree is we can really focus on what we want to do. We can really focus on the food that we're, that we're trying to focus on. We don't have to put in dishes that are vegan or vegetarian, for instance, because there's a vegan concession there that caters for all of that. So we can just really focus on nine or ten dishes and and just make sure they're right and make sure that you know that people get a good time could you see bonnie and wild moving to glasgow because it's quite a lot of glasgow restaurants that have opened concessions in edinburgh <laughs> do you reckon it could come to glasgow and have some edinburgh yeah i, I think it seems to be uh, there is a lot of glasgow names in there i think it certainly can work 
in, in Glasgow. You know, this this whole market concept is huge all around the world. And to a degree, we, we've, we've had it in Glasgow and we still have it in Glasgow with, you know, things like the Archies and Big Eat and things like that are doing that kind of thing. What Bonnie and Wild has done, which again is different from any of these market concepts I've seen, is that they have they have made it a dining, a restaurant experience. You know, it's beautiful cutlery, it's beautiful glassware, and you're sitting on you're, you're sitting on tables and chairs that wouldn't look at a place in a Michelin star restaurant. It looks on a W Hotel and Harrods and all that sort of stuff. So it, it's got this casual dining concept within a really, really nice area. Whereas a lot of the markets are using, you know, they, they started off in Spain, you know, using old kind of train warehouses where the whole focus was just on local food and young chefs. And you sat on barrels and all sorts of whatever was there. So they've just they've just upped the ante, I think, a little bit, even 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 more so than the London company that I originally started talking to, you know, because they their focus is always on it's almost like a spit and sawdust type of look. Bonnie and Wild have have just lifted that and changed the dynamics of what a market a market concept can be. And I think you know whether it's a Bonnie and Wild or whether it's another company, we're going to see a lot more of this type of dining happening very very soon. I think that formal Booking a table, waiting for you know people just don't have the time or energy to be sitting for four four hours over lunch, but they still want good food, they still want healthy food, they still want you know local and sustainable food, and I think you know this is a fun way to do it. And so we've mentioned um, COVID and Brexit in the last couple of years. It's been a bit of a roller coaster to say the least. But um, have you quite a lot of chefs have spoken about staff shortages and like having to reduce working days for staff health as well as because of the shortages? Have, have yeah. you found that um, with Creocot or is it is it been pretty plain sailing as much as it can be? No, I wish I wish it was. I think to be honest, I recognised long before it opened that it was going to be tough to recruit for a number of reasons. And Brexit has its issues because obviously the hospitality industry has relied on EU staff or the whole food industry relies on EU staff. So it was always going to be an issue. The big issue here, what the big thing what, what's happened in, in hospitality is chefs have, for the first time probably in their careers, they've seen there's another world out there. They've seen that, you know, there's a Saturday night or a, you know, there's a Sunday with the kids. And a lot of chefs had to find other ways to make money. They had to find other ways, even if they were on furlough, a lot of chefs are still out working and, and finding new industries. And I think what it's done for the first time for a lot of chefs is that it's made them sit back and think about their life. It's made them think about you know, their careers and, and how they move forward. And I think gone are the days when a chef's expected to work you know, every Friday, Saturday night. I mean, I, I joke about being I was 46 before I got a weekend off started cooking at 15 I was 46 and when I say first time I got a weekend off it was the first time I got a weekend off that I that actually the following weekend I'm off and the following weekend I was off because I wasn't doing anything my life had changed primarily because I won MasterChef but I didn't have to work weekends for the first time since I was 15 and I think chefs getting that kind of two years out for some of them are sitting back and saying, you know what, there's more to life. You know, they've found seeing their kids more. You know, because if you think, if you're a chef, you work every Friday night, Saturday and Sunday, and you've got young kids, when do you see them? And I think a lot of people, they've, they've, dare I say it, they've built a relationship with their families that they probably never had before. And they think to themselves, why would they give that up? So for us as an industry, we have to react to that. We have to, we have to think about that work-life balance more. I think we have to look at 
people as individuals in terms of when it comes to recruitment. You know, and a, a lot of kitchens are going down to four-day week and things like that. But I think we have to go further. And I think we have to, there's only so much money. There's only so much of a percentage of the wage wages that you can pay. And there is a cap, you know, regardless of what that cap is. But what I think you've got to do is you've, you've got to make someone's job so tailored to them that they want to keep it, they want to work hard, and they don't want to move. And it is things like supporting them when, you know, you know, if they've got one of their kids plays football on a Saturday morning, you know, give them a Saturday morning off, get them in Saturday night or whatever the case may be. And it's tailoring hours and conditions and things like that around that individual. And I think the more you can tailor a job around someone, you know, the the more likely you're going to have a, a good employee. I mean, I know you you talked about working at the college and training up students. Are they are they coming into this sort of looking for that kind of better working environment and expecting certain things from the chefs they're going to work with? Because obviously, there's been a bit of yeah. bad press um, recently, and I, I I would just wonder if the younger people are saying, "Well, I'm not going to put up with X, Y, or Z." So, is that kind of what you're yeah. seeing from the young people coming in? I've noticed probably for more than a decade. I think the, the young people coming through now are much worldly wise than I ever was coming into college. You know, when I came into World of Work, your line manager, i.e. The, the chef de party above you, whatever he said went, and whatever the sous chef told him went, whatever the head chef told the sous chef went. Kids these days, young people these days are smart. You know, they've got the world at their fingertips via their iPhone. So they don't have to really listen completely to the people around them. They can make their own choices. And I think the days of chefs working, the hours that I did are over. And that's the only way. I wouldn't want my kids to be doing the hours I did. And again, it depends on on where it is. The big thing, you know, again, is, sort of, is looking at the word chef, you know, and we've got this stereotypical vision of what a chef is. And it's dictated by TV. You know, we look at, you know, we've got Gordon Ramsay and the celebrity chefs that run restaurants and things like that. Even to a degree, MasterChef is always back. Um, MasterChef, the degree changes up a little bit because they always bring a big circle of different people from military chefs to industrial to private to educators and things like that. But I think it's important when we get a, a young person into college that we open the whole world of hospitality up to them. It's not just about, you know, that that fine dining restaurant, you know, not all of our students are going to are going to disappear into Michelin Star or go off to London or New York. Some will, but the majority don't. So it's up to us and further education to show that there is more to it than being a hotel or restaurant chair. Times are changing, though. You must see that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think more, more and more people are speaking out about bad practices, whether it's bars or restaurants or whatever, and I think yeah. that can only be a good thing because... I think the thing, though, I spoke about it right at the start of uh, lockdowns and said that I'm hoping that the public now realise the cost of dining, you know, the cost of dining out. And for too long, chefs and front of house have been subsidising the food for the customer. And I think it's now the time to for restaurants to charge the right amount of money to provide the service that they do. And I know that sounds crazy, but they don't. You know, it's subsidised by, you know, or used to be subsidised by by staff working more hours than they were getting paid for so that someone could get a perceived deal. You know, for instance, I got interviewed, I can't remember who it was, and I was talking about we're going to bring the very best of Scottish seafood in a casual dining environment and make it accessible. And the reporter asked me, are you going to make it accessible price-wise? And I says, I'm going to charge what it takes to get it on the plate and so that I can pay the staff, pay the rent, 
and I says it's, we've got to charge the right amount of money so that everyone's look, getting looked after. And if we can't charge that money, then it won't be on the menu and it, we just won't do it. And that's the key. I've got a, a scallop dish on, on the menu. It's a hand-dived scallop from Mulm, black pudding, potatoes, everything else that goes with it. And I charge $14.95. And I, and I got a, a complaint through Instagram from a from a woman saying, oh, that dish couldn't have cost you any more than £5. So I, I sent her back I sent her back an equation of how restaurants work. You know, when you, when you take VAT off, so you take, so you get $14.95, you take the VAT off, which at the minute is 12.5% or 12%. So you take that off. You then take off your 30% wage cost. You then take off your rent or utilities, everything else. And you know what you're left with? You're left with minus £1.50 if the dish costs a fiver. So it's getting people around the fact that it's not just a case of us cooking it and giving it to you. There's so many other things that need to be paid for. And the other hand is the poor guy who's dived into the, into the sea to get the scallop still got to get paid. Now, he's jumping to the bottom of the sea, you know. And and, and I said, I says, look, I can give you three scallops, but I'd have to get them dredged. And I don't want dredged food on the menu. And that's the bottom line. So it's a hand-dyed mouth scallop where someone's jumped in the sea to collect it. That's the price. That is the price. And it's a portion, it's a it's a substantial portion, but it's one scallop, but that's what it costs. You know, and I think people need to realize that if you want to, you know, if you want to eat sustainably, you want to eat ethically, you want to eat locally, customers now have to start paying. Well, thank you very much. And um, I'm gonna need to come back in and try the scallop, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for your time. No, not at all. Thanks for having us. Thanks to Gary for being my guest and thanks to you for listening. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Scran is a laudable podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton.